step into the realm of wellness with the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. In this final installment, Maureen reflects on the show being on the air for 14 years. Dr. Tommy Mitchell talks to her about workplace harassment based off of a damning report from the UBC Ophthalmology Program. Dr. John Weisler reflects on being a regular guest on the show and some of the best heart health advice. But first, are we good at listening? Deb Porter, certified executive mentor and public speaker, talks to Maureen about the power of listening. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. They say communication is one of the most important aspects of life. So much gets lost in the interpretation or what we think we hear. There's, in my clinical practice even, whenever couples come in or somebody comes in with an issue or workplace issue or whatever, it ultimately boils down to communication, which is why I'm totally excited about my guest right now. Joining me on the line is Deb Porter. She's an executive mentor, a certified executive mentor, a public speaker. She cultivates healthy communication and relationships in business and life through education and She talks about the power of listening, one of the most crucial aspects of communication. Good evening, Deb. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me tonight. Well, thank you so much. And, you know, communication, it's it's so difficult, yet we do it on the daily. Um, That's really such an important part of our lives, whether it be with our families or our friends or our colleagues. And yet so much gets lost in the shuffle, if you will. And, you know, listening is probably one of the most challenging skills, I would say, uh, for anybody. Tell me why it's important that people listen. Uh, it, it's the foundation of relationships, truly. Um, when people listen well, the connection can happen. Um, it's, it's, it's so critical. It's foundational. Uh, you know, um, it's so interesting. Even with that foundation, listening, listening skills aren't taught in school. Uh, I don't know about Canada, but in America, only 2% of people have ever had any training in active listening skills. That's a really startling statistic. That's according to listen.org. Um, that's, um, mind-blowing, really, when you think about how important listening really is in order to connect with people in our life and in our businesses. And, and we have a tendency to want to talk, and, and dare I say that as a, as a talk show host, but, um, you know, <laughs> that is our, our tendency. And, and even in my clinical practice, you know, oftentimes a, a half an hour will go by and I won't say anything because I am listening to the patient. I'm listening to their concerns, their issues. Um, I'm kind of shocked that even 2% of people have had some training in listening because I, I wouldn't imagine anybody's ever had training on how to do that. But it's such a gift if you are able to listen because, you know, people have this idea and correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm talking way too much right now, but there's this perceived power people have, and I think they think they can demonstrate it through talking. So tell me a little bit about the power of listening. So when we slow down and we take in what the other person's offering, we then begin to understand things from their perspective. So I teach a core framework to help people begin to start to listen well. Um, Would it be all right if I just share that really quick? Please do. I would love it. Okay, so the framework that I teach, um, it's called the core of listening. It's an acronym so that it helps people remember what it stands for. So the C stands for calm. In order to really listen to anyone, we need to be calm. And especially in your practice, um, 
the people that come to you, they, they may not have emotional regulation to begin with. And so with your ability to stay calm, you help them reestablish their emotional regulation. So calm is the very first step to listen well. The second one is O, and for that's outcome. What outcome do we hope to get from being engaged in this conversation? Where is it we want to, where is it we are trying to go? And establishing that from the outset of the conversation helps us to listen well. Then we're listening for those steps and for those things. The next step is R, and that stands for relate. When we relate well, then we're asking those questions, clarifying questions. We're making sure that we've done the things most people think of when when we're talking about listening. It means we're putting the phone away. We're not distracted. We're actually dialed in. It also includes other things such as body language and and more. Um, And then finally, the E stands for empathy. And this is truly the heart of listening. When we listen with heart and with our empathy, we're extending to somebody else true compassion and care. And I'm sure that's exactly, sounds like exactly what you do in your practice. Well, I certainly try, but in every aspect or every interaction of life, it can be very difficult. And, you know, that C or the calm, as I would say, um, you know, to remain calm, especially, you know, sometimes people feel like they're being attacked or, or sometimes people come on like gangbusters and, you know, they, they may be, it may be a legitimate concern that they feel like they're being attacked or, or somebody just comes on and they're just gonna, you know, um, just talk the whole time and have a, you know, a negative tone or, and, and tell me about tone. In fact, what what are people hearing? Is it difficult to listen when somebody has a, a less than appealing tone? Well, it does. It doesn't make an impact. Of course it does. Um, ultimately you, you may or may not have an ongoing relationship with the person that you're listening to. And so you, uh, in those ongoing relationships, we often pick up even more subtleties than if it's somebody that's new that we're just hearing for the first time. In fact, I was uh, finding myself even with a little bit of anxiety before um, speaking with you tonight. I was like, oh, wow, we didn't speak at all before this. And so we've, we've had interactions um, by email, but I was really hoping and without the visual cues, it's, it's very difficult to follow through and make sure that you are picking up on all of those subtleties. It's, it, it's important. Right. I mean, that's a very good point, especially in today's world, post-pandemic. People have never met. They've never seen each other. They don't even know who they are. If you haven't Googled the person, you have no idea what they even look like. Um, And then somebody might pick up the phone and call you and whatever, you know, lay into you or whatever. And, you know, people's autonomic nervous systems start to react. You know, our heart's race and we start to breathe quickly and, you know, panic sets in and and maybe the brain shuts down. Does that make it more difficult? Is that some of the struggles that people have with listening? Yes. um, We have a a resource that's called Rescuing a Sideways Conversation, and it talks about those internal and external cues that you just mentioned, the heart racing and, and, and those uh, that autonomic response, uh, of course, it, it plays a huge impact. That's why the calm is so important. If you find those uh, signs and signals happening in you, 
you want to make sure you stop and take a breath and reestablish your calm in order to continue the conversation. I encourage people, if you aren't able to reestablish calm, don't continue the conversation in that moment. Take a pause. Um, if it's in a professional situation, you can even simply say, uh, you know, um, I need to circle back with you and I will do that at this date and time. Um, I really, I really want to hear you. And right now I'm not in the best place to be able to understand what it is you're trying to communicate to me. Uh, that's great advice, actually. Um, you know, some people might say they may not want to uh, say they're not in a great space. Um, a lot of people, you know, self-esteem comes into play, ego comes into play, um, and, and people get defensive. What role does being defensive play in the art of listening? When you're defensive, you can't hear. <laughs> you, you simply cannot listen if you're defensive. Mm-hmm. Then what you're, it's, it throws up a wall. I mean, that's the entire message of the word defensive. It's like those walls are up. And um, in order to really hear somebody, you have to be in that calm state where those defenses are down for the connection to really happen. That's where the power is. The power is in lowering those walls, having that vulnerability and that realness in, in the communication. Right. Why do you think uh, people get defensive? I mean, this might might be outside of your (laughs) um, (laughs) skill set, but you sound pretty, pretty much like a pro to me. (laughs) I could use you on my team. Um, (laughs) But... Defensive, defensiveness, I believe, comes from um, our past experiences, what we expect to come. Um, it, it can arise for a myriad of reasons, and many of which we're not going to know. But when we can feel it starting to come from another person, um, you can actually offer some, some way to, to soothe that. I feel, I feel coming from you that you might um, feel some anxiety or tension from me. I wasn't attempting to, to raise your walls about that. How can, how can we move past that? You know, and inviting them into it so that they're, they, because they may not have the own, their self-awareness, uh, that it's even happening. And so if you're aware of it, then I, um, if you feel comfortable, if you don't feel comfortable, then back away. (laughs) Exactly. Um, I just had a quick question today. We, um, we do so much communication by text messaging, instant messaging on Instagram, by email. We would never say to people in person some of the things that we say via email and text messaging. Mm-hmm. Um, why is that and how damaging can that be to relationships? Ooh, uh, it can be incredibly damaging because it's thoughtless. You know, if, if, if we respond in thoughtlessness, that can be damaging and harmful. And then we have to do repair work, which is even harder. I really recommend people, before you hit send, look at it twice and say, is that really what I meant to say? Could somebody think about that in a different way? I uh, Texting, real communication. I mean, texting is great for, can you bring milk home tonight? <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's but if you really need to have a communicate or the dog food or whatever it is, but if you really, really, really need to have a conversation with somebody, then take the effort to um, set up a time to talk, make, make an appointment. Um, you know, I, if you just shoot that text off um, in anger, um, it's, it's going to probably escalate instead of unless someone's really talented on the other end to really understand where you're at um, 
it can spin out of control so quickly. Oh my gosh. Oh, totally. I even noticed my kids, you know, in the text message, I feel their tone and I'm just like, this is completely unnecessary. You know, <laughs> why are you mm-hmm. treating me this way? And, and they're like, I'm not treating, you know, what do you mean? I'm just impatient or I'm whatever, you know, again, that, that defensiveness. Um, and, and then how about, uh, the emails, you know, how, you know, how long should emails be? Um, what, when, when should we use an email versus picking up the phone and saying, Hey, you know, how are you doing? I wanted to, you know, talk to you about this or that, you know, what, what is your advice? Well, my thought on that is, um, what, level of communication really needs to happen. Email is great for um, short things, but things that need are longer and need to be developed more, that's probably a better conversation. Um, ultimately, you want to um, think about the other person and um, consider their needs uh, when you're replying to something that, for example, that they sent. Um, is it uh, is it something that can, can be communicated clearly and quickly in a, in a, in a response? Or is it something that, uh, no, this is going to be nuanced and has different layers and we might be better off problem solving and talking it through in a conversation? Is, yeah. that, is that clear? Yeah, yeah, that's totally clear. You know, oftentimes I hire subcontractors, people to work for me, uh, nurses. Um, and, you know, if, if I... I'm going to be providing feedback and, you know, it's something I commonly do. Um, you know, I routinely do. It's, you know, I always have that conversation with them and I always start out with, you know, something positive. That's kind of my tip. And, you know, everybody does something well, you know, because I think if we all only get negative, we just, you just feel like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm a horrible person or whatever can hit, whatever can trigger, whatever. Um, but what is your advice for providing feedback to people? So uh, feedback, again, best in person, I agree with you 100%. Always start with something positive and also try to end with something positive. Um, uh, I think that when you're providing feedback from with someone um, and you're being really honest, you want to make sure that um, their defensiveness hasn't made it so they can't hear you. And so following through in the conversation to say um, when this happens, perhaps um, what I was really hoping you would do was this, making sure that you speak from I statements um, in offering the feedback will help the other person to hear you. Um, yeah, those things are really critical. Yeah, and I think oftentimes people, you know, there's this sort of perceived power that people think they have, and they may, you know, in the moment might be transient. Getting into relationships, more intimate relationships, one of the issues in my clinical practice that I see is uh, a, you know, one part of the couple will say, an issue that they have with the other, with their partner, spouse, whatever. And I'll say, have you spoken to them about that? And they'll say, oh, no, oh, I never would. And so we keep things in. Now there's the power of listening, but sometimes there's the power of talking. (laughs) And, And what are your thoughts on that in terms of communication, especially in an intimate relationship? Other people can't read our minds. And so in order to really um, have the deep relationships that we're looking for, we have to be willing to find that vulnerability. And that takes developing the emotional intelligence to trust and going back and reminding yourself of, I mean, if you're in this relationship, there's obviously a point at which you felt comfortable and you, you develop trust with this person. Remind yourself of those things is, it would be my advice. And then 
build build from that. Um, if you feel like you can't say something to someone else, that's a real indicator that there's something deeper there. Um, that when did that stop happening? You want to start looking at that and um, and work your way through it so the communication can flow. We really want to have if we're if we're interested in deeper connections with others, we have to be willing to risk it. So it's really interesting. Um, even though I teach listening, the very in our course, listen your way to deeper connections, which is about all about deepening those relationships. Uh, the last module is um, speaking to be heard, and so yeah, I, I, it's so it's so interesting. Um, there are ways that you can. Um, presents a difficult topic to someone else so that they will be able to hear you. Yeah, yeah it's such a challenging issue. I do want to mention your website, hearingoutlifedrama.com. I got to say, I love that because a lot of this is just drama, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Whether it be personal relationships, business relationships, friendships as well, because those can actually break down due to poor communication also. Exactly, yeah. And, and really, I mean, I've seen this in my clinical practice over the years, the biggest issue in relationships, it always comes down to communication. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, my thought on that is that the foundation of communication is listening. And so when you get the listening part right and well, then you'll find that um, those relationships get so much better. That's been my experience over and over and over again. And it's completely worth it. And I love that core, um, calm, outcomes, relate. And the last one was E. Empathy. <laughs> empathy, of course. Yeah. Having empathy, yeah. very important. But, you know, at least begin with calm, and especially when you're going to have a difficult conversation. And a lot of the conversations today can be quite difficult, whether it be in your personal or your professional. Um, anyway, the best way for people to get in touch with you, Deb? Uh, email is great. Info at hearingoutlifedrama.com will find me. Um, otherwise, I'm on all the social channels um, at Hearing Out Life Drama. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you joining the program tonight. Thank you. Though our time together may be ending, the memories will live on forever. And I have a tremendous amount of memories. I think it's been about 14 years that I've been here uh, educating people through the airwaves. And it all started because a physician colleague of mine and friend asked me to do him a favor. He was asked to be on the show, on a show, uh, to talk about something health-related for five minutes, and he didn't want to do it, and would I do it for him? I obliged, and I went on the show, and I talked about low sexual desire in women and a study that I had run many years ago, and just the number of women who responded to that, who were in loving relationships but had no sexual desire. So that was the very first. I figured on a business and politics show, which of which it was that I was a guest on, you know, nobody had covered low sexual desire in women. So they asked me to come back and I had a regular health segment every other week and then it went to every week. And then in 2012, I think it was, I said, I think it's time for my own show. And I prepared for that pitch for two months and I went to the station manager at the time and I said, you know, I 
I think it's time for my own show. He gave me five minutes to talk to him on a Friday. And I had my pitch already. And he said, uh, yeah, I agree with you. Can you start on Sunday night? And I'm like, hang on there. I worked two months on this pitch. (laughs) You're not just going to give me this show. Anyway, it's been an absolute blast. I've loved every second of it. And I've mostly enjoyed connecting with all of you. But as we look down memory lane, I realize, wow, we covered a lot. Um, And here's a little sampling of what we have covered on the program. We've covered everything from, you remember, the pandemic, COVID-19. Yeah, and I mean, it was going to. Uh, it's, it's just one of those things where we have international travel and people from the UK are coming to um, our country. And sure enough, when that happens, um, there is the risk that someone is going to be, um, you know, exposed to and have the virus, may not even have symptoms, and then that will get spread to other people. So this is the type of thing that you expect to happen. I think we talked about this quite extensively in the beginning in February and March, um, but it really didn't get the attention that everybody really should have given it. And I think now that we've got the variant, we're going to be talking about the exact same thing we talked about nine months ago, but I think people are much more aware of what's going on. And so from that perspective, this idea of a variant coming to our soil, while not particularly that important when it comes to the overall COVID pandemic, is incredibly good because it's giving us even more reason to get back to the ABCs of prevention um, so that we can stay safe. We also talked about long-distance sex toys. I've got some good news, especially for those of you who are in long-distance relationships or those of you who are with somebody who travels quite a bit um, or you find yourself in different cities for whatever reason. um, There are some fabulous long-distance sex toys for you. As you know, I was talking to somebody in my office this week and um, she had been apart from her spouse for a while and then like three or four months and then they reconvened in a very romantic country, I might add. And she said she didn't really know how that reconnection would be. And she said it was actually a lovely, lovely meeting uh, together. And as they say, absence makes the heart grow fonder. They don't just make up adages like that. They're actually true to life. But you know what? Sometimes uh, absence can also do some other things. It can actually make you aroused or make you feel incredibly frisky. And long-distance couples know this struggle more acutely than anybody else. So they need to find ways to overcome that distance that actually may impact your relationship or or threaten to interfere with your sex life. So it's important to keep that sex going, whether you are in the same city or not. And, you know, traditionally, people or couples have turned to phone sex, but now there are so many virtual sex toys that can be controlled through apps. And you can do this You can do it from anywhere in the world. (laughs) All you need is a phone in your hand. We also talked about FOPO, fear of other people's opinions. And what are some of your favorite quotes? What are some of your favorite words? And once you've answered these questions, and I'll just quickly go over them again. When I'm at my best, what beliefs lie just beneath the surface of my thoughts and actions? Who are the people that demonstrate characteristics and qualities that are in alignment with mine? What are the qualities? And what are your favorite quotes, your favorite words? Once you've answered those questions, circle the words that stand out to you and cross out the ones that don't. 
And then when you see what you've got left, you can come up with a phrase or a sentence or a mantra that lines up with who you are and how you want to live your life. You can share that draft with a loved one or somebody that you care about or think a lot of. You can ask for input and then fine tune it from there. It doesn't mean that you never go to people and ask their opinion. We all have challenges in life. We're all not sure what to do, but that personal philosophy is very important. And then also go to some trusted people whose opinion you respect, but commit yourself to live in accordance with your personal philosophy. Remember it. And then start in your own home. Tell your family that you love them. Take some risks, you know, be, do something you never thought you would have done. Do public speaking. A lot of people are afraid for that. Go for that promotion. Anyway, do things that will engender the opinions of others. And then when you feel the power of FOPO holding you back, acknowledge it, reconnect to your philosophy and and your objective for your own life. And who could forget our conversations with Dr. Timothy Caulfield, and especially one that rose out of the ashes of the pandemic, conspiracy theorists. Here you go. But the other interesting thing is it really speaks to this normalization, right, of conspiracy theories and pseudoscience that we're not all aghast at the things he's saying, you know, that there is this huge swath of the populace that is comfortable with these kinds of lies. And and I'm sure you've seen this kind of content also, Maureen, where people go, well, maybe he's, you know, he's spreading lies and, and some of the stuff is iffy, but I still like what he's saying. It still speaks to me. So it's as if the truth doesn't matter. Uh, it's almost like they've accepted that conspiracy theories are, are part of the game. Um, we still like his message. I'm also incredibly grateful and my heart is just full when I think about all of the contribution that my next guest has given to the show. She's just been amazing, diehard, reliable, consistent, informative, intelligent, and generous of her time and of her knowledge. And she's just been amazing. She is the go-to MD coach. She empowers executives, leaders, physicians, lawyers, and other professionals to reduce burnout so they can increase productivity in the workplace and in their personal lives. And if you're not an executive or a lawyer or another kind of professional, don't worry. She helps everybody. She is none other than the esteemed Dr. Tommy Mitchell. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. Good evening, Maureen. How are you? I'm doing well. Are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much. <laughs> All is good. We have a little yes. bit of a change here. Um, yes. This will be the last time we hear you on this particular program, but um, I'm so glad you and I have talked and you'll be coming on my podcast uh, in the future. Oh, thank you so much. And I want to thank you so much for all of the hard work and dedication that you've given to the show over the years. And it's just been amazing. You've been so reliable and you're a trusted colleague and not just a trusted colleague, but you're also a friend. And I'm honored to call you my friend. Same. I feel the same. You know, it's been two years. 
Has it really? Second year. Wow. Wow. This year too. Time flies when you're having fun. Definitely. (laughs) And it's certainly been a lot of fun. I have to say, I've thoroughly enjoyed every single minute of it. Never once did I ever not want to do this show or not want to, you know, hit the airwaves and share something or, uh, you know, talk about what's been going on in the news, you know, and, and, and speaking of what's been going on in the news, um, you know, I just want to touch upon this very lightly and very quickly about the allegations that have been made at the University of British Columbia in the ophthalmology um, department. I don't know if you read about that at all, but it's uh, around sexual harassment in the work place um, with ophthalmology residents. I haven't read the story, but we are in that global reckoning where it's not acceptable. And unfortunately, this is more common than we realize. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Harassment, whether sexually, verbal, emotional, it's it's all wrong, and and you bring up a great point um, that it you know that it's very common, uh, unfortunately and sadly it's it's commonplace. Um, the University of British Columbia story, the allegations there, it is around a culture of fear and ongoing sexual harassment, and, and it prompted changes at the UBC ophthalmology program. But is that enough? This was rampant, and there were allegations of sexual touching and comments that have gone on for years. There were whistleblowers, which I'm so glad that there were whistleblowers, finally, (laughs) in UBC's ophthalmology program um, that reached out last year, alleging the university and departmental leaders had brushed aside complaints by students and trainees. You know, and the complaints, as I mentioned, were sexual touching and, co- and um, comments as well. And, you know, I mean, this is absolutely horrifying. You know, we, we think of doctors like you, to be like you. You know, the highest professional conduct, the, you know, integrity, good ethics. I mean, what do you think of this as a physician? It's really unfortunate. It's sad. And you know what? Um, In all walks of professions, we have people that make very bad choices. And it's very unfortunate when it's in a profession that's supposed to be a trusted, esteemed profession. But toxicity is system-wide. It comes in many shapes and forms. And again, I'm proud of these people for standing up and being persistent to what is clearly wrong, which are clear violations of trust and um, basic human um, dignity. So uh, it's unfortunate, but nobody's above the law. And that's no. the truth. And eventually the truth will come out. Absolutely. And no, no one's above yeah. the law. And, and in healthcare, we think it can't happen. It's so common in healthcare oh, and in other so industries yeah. as well. But these people were in a, prof- in a position of power. And so I think that the students and trainees didn't want to speak up because these people who were harassing them, sexually touching them allegedly, um, were also grading their papers and they were deciding if they moved on. I mean, it's just, it's horrific. Definitely, because these people could destroy their whole careers. I think they've worked so hard to get into it. Ophthalmology is very competitive to get into. There's very few places in Canada where you can train. Um, It's it's, it's gross abuse of power. It certainly Um, is. 
yeah, I was interested to see how this will all pan out. Yeah, there was also bullying behavior, and that included calling the students stupid in front of their peers, and clinical staff and physician instructors were also laughing at learners' mistakes. And um, the, these are allegations, um, keep that in mind. But the the students felt, of course, as you would, they felt degraded and embarrassed. But the thing here is they each thought that it was only happening to them. And then they started yeah. to talk amongst themselves and they realized yeah. that these people were treating everybody this way, allegedly. Um, or allegedly, I should say. You know, these definitely are allegations, you know, all kidding aside. Um, but, you know, that's the truth. You find out somebody treats you poorly and you think you're the only one and you think there's something wrong with you. And then you find yeah. out that they've actually treated 20 other people poorly as well. You know, yeah, yeah. And, I've, and I've lived it even as a resident myself. And it's like, it's a real thing. It's very rarely is an isolated case or they pick and choose who they, you know, attack. So it's unfortunate. I'm glad they, t- they talked. I'm glad this is coming out. It's wrong. Um, it's, it's just disgusting. Sexual abuse is a whole new level of sick. It's wrong. That's all I can say. And and it affects people it for the rest of their lives. For That's the rest so, of their lives. It's so sad. I really hope that they get the help that they need immediately. Those who have um, placed these allegations on their teachers, on who mm. are physicians. Anyway, yeah. anyhow, it's um, a very disturbing story. But you help, um, and, and your website, holisticwellnessstrategies.com? Yeah. Um, you help people in higher positions, um, uh, you know, with some of these kinds of issues that they find themselves in, in workplaces. And so you deal with burnout, you deal with poor decision making, you deal with all sorts of things. Tell me some yeah. of the, the things that you see and how people can prevent those from happening to them. Yeah, I see in all works of life, from the executives to the one who's entry level at a job, burnout, poor boundaries, um, just series of choices that have led them to the place where they realize that they need help. And it's being honest with what the root causes of the situation is. I'm not one who puts a Band-Aid on. Band-Aids are just meant to be a temporary thing. Like if someone is bleeding, you apply pressure, then you figure out what causing the bleeding and fix it. Um, same with our lives. So taking a holistic approach and knowing that a problem is rarely just, one thing is rarely just the diagnosis, it's like a symptom. Burnout is a symptom of many other things. It's not just one thing. Yes, there can be main contributing factors, but in order to really look at the real issue, you have to look at the systemic root causes. And in our lives, let's face it, we have our individual stuff that we have to deal with past, present, and future. We have the work the individual, the team stuff, like if you're on a work team, um, the politics there. And then you have the system in which that team organ operates in, whether it's a large organization, a country, state, province, etc. So we have to look at the three levels, and that takes work. Rarely is in isolation, just like this case with a BC resident student. This is a cultural thing. It's not an individual issue. It's a team issue. It's a leadership issue. And I feel if you tackle problems from leadership and you really grab the bull by the horns and hold them accountable and inspire them and encourage them and give them the tools to do better. Everyone who is under their leadership does better. But if you have toxic leadership, God help you. 
um, it's a challenge. So that's really why I focus on leaders. But that doesn't mean that I don't have clients who are entry level. But definitely, I feel like if I if I can really impact from the top, we can make the best change in moving down. Just like in our government, if we can make change from the top. It'll be a lot easier to make changes on the ground level. You know, first of all, it takes someone a long time to report. They haven't done their homework. They haven't documented the conversations. They haven't, you know, done they. And therefore, when it's bullying in particular or even sexual harassment, like somebody might have just touched somebody once inappropriately and somebody might think, well, you know, was that, wasn't it? It's confusing. It's a campaign. Um, People don't have, I don't know if they don't know or they don't have the confidence to jot every conversation down, right? Where you were, what the time was, everything. Because when you then go and say, here's the deal, this is what happened to me, this is what you know, when you have documentation, lawyers love that, let me tell you. Um, but, you know, when you go oftentimes to complain to the higher ups, if you will, the higher ups don't want the trouble. They ignore it. And they often look at the target as the person who has the problem. But when there's actually the bully is bullying a lot of people. Yeah. It's um, cultural. It stems down. And that's why, again, you have to really... Uh, hold leaders accountable. There must be systems in place to hold them accountable. Otherwise, this whole toxic behaviors will continue and it just destroys something that could have been such a beautiful experience for everyone. And an impact, like you mentioned, can be lifelong. This is not trivial. This is a big deal. It can scar somebody for life. Uh, Right? It's the truth. Absolutely. So um, what are some of the more common reasons that uh, people come to see you uh, in your practice, in your holistic wellness strategist practice. And the website is holisticwellnessstrategies.com. Yeah. So I see people who are in a rut in life. Perhaps they've gone through a few relationships, challenges, work, and they're like, they need something different. I have, I have the pleasure of having clients that are, university students who've kind of followed the plan that was set for them by family and then realized that "Mm, this isn't quite working. I need to figure out me and really help open their horizon. But again, these are very driven individuals. Um, Some are like owners, CEOs of businesses who just feel overwhelmed, stuck, and letting them give themselves permission to breathe, to take care of oneself and realize where the faulty thought patterns were rooted from and how it got to them and how explain why they're in the situation that they're in. So really it's varied. It's really to, I let people share their concerns. We figure out root causes and we figure out a plan together. Um, it's a very active type of coaching. It's not, it's, it's active. We're both participants, but you as the individual, you are really creating your destiny. I'm just giving you the tools to help you figure it out. Cause I think that in, within each of us, there's so much greatness, so much potential that is there untapped, but you just need guidance and the tools with accountability to get there. Right. And, you know, we think of CEOs as having it all, but it's kind of lonely at the top, isn't it? Oh, it's so lonely at the top. It can be yeah, very much. So the higher up you are, the less friends, the less real friends you have and the less time you have because there's so many responsibility and everyone's eyes are watching you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a very, very, very tiny, lonely. It's, it's quiet up there. You if you've experienced. 
And if you've experienced any of this, one 399 9898 That's 1-877-399-9898. We'd love to hear from you. Um, you know, it's people think just because somebody has a lot of money or they have a lot of power they that they must have it all together. But you kind of got to be a bit ruthless to get to that CEO position um, in life. And, you know, you have to be maybe a bit of a perfectionist, maybe, you know, really know how to set limits. I mean, I don't know. I'm not a CEO. <laughs> I have no idea uh, how to get there. But CEOs that I've known, and I've certainly seen some in my clinical practice, you know, um, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. Exactly. It takes a lot of sacrifice, a lot of a lot of work. But we are we are all the CEOs of our own lives. Let's not forget that. Like, we can really determine our destiny uh, yeah and there's definitely going to be ups and downs but again look forward chin up optimism i know the best is yet to come and you know um you know it affects people's health as well uh especially when they have issues around setting limits and boundaries or making so many sacrifices or they're just getting working so hard they're getting to the point of point of burnout um, which is like depletion and I know we've talked about that before and yeah. you know it's just um, it, it's not good for our physical or emotional well-being 100 percent you know the physical impact of burnout is profound and for some people it might present well, they first recognize it as a heart attack. But for us in the healthcare professional, it's manifested long before then. So, you know, don't wait till it becomes that heart attack or, you know, I'm needing a pacemaker or something like that. Um, I've seen that happen. It's unfortunate. Right. But and your health is priceless. And and I mean, people are on a treadmill. And they, I've, I've seen these people go, 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 and, you know, never stop and never stop to smell the roses. And they, they have to, con- everything's a panic. Everything is, you know, an immediate. They got to get it now. They've got to, you know, it's it's just this sort of mental state of panic and fear and moving and never stopping. And sometimes I wonder, and I'm, I'll ask you this question, is it that people don't stop and they stay busy, 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 chronically busy because they don't want to feel their pain? Yeah, that's part of it. And, and sometimes one has dug their hole so deep, their response, they're in over their head and they don't know how to get out. And it may mean just cutting your losses and walking away, right? It may mean major changes in your life, but are you willing to come to terms with it? And and many people, their identity, they feel identity is based on their title their work so when it, they lose that they they're lost so so many factors but you, your health is priceless i was once there i i reached burnt on that was part of my inspiration for doing what i do is and i was ceo right and many people depended on me but i had to make choices for myself for my family's um, future self and my health i had to be strategic selfish for myself and my future and, and it's not really being selfish it's just being being human. And, and how much better is your life now? Oh, a bazillion times. I look 10 years younger. I feel <laughs> a thousand times better. Like, you know, I, everything is better. So, yeah. But it, it was, there was growing pains. There was birth pains. It wasn't easy. Yeah. You know, making decisions and transitioning. But it was so worth it. I'm so grateful. 
I, and I'm so happy for you because I know that state of burnout is, you know, mental exhaustion, it's excessive and prolonged stress, and it's not good for us. But you know what, Dr. Mitchell, you have been good for us. You have been good for me. You've been good for the show. You've been good for the listeners. You've been good for your patients. You're so good. And I am so grateful. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. My pleasure, Maria. Thanks for trusting me, you know, uh, for almost two years, being on the show live, entrusting me to your loyal listeners over the past, what, 14 years you've been doing this. Um, it's been an honor. I've had a blast. Thank you so much. Same, same for me. It's been an honor and I've had a blast. What more can you ask for in life? <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much. But uh, we'll be seeing you soon. Oh, yeah. We'll be on these airs. Don't worry. You may or may not have heard that um, this is the swan song for the Sunday Night Hell Show. Um, I'm not going away totally, though. There will be, you will be able to find me. But uh, I wanted to take a moment because I'm so grateful uh, for the years that I've had here um, at the station and all of the guests, not only just the listeners, you guys have been amazing as well, the tech producers, but my incredible guests that, I, that I've that i had that have a wealth of knowledge and have just been so generous with their time in the interest of helping people to heal, get better, be healthy, have preventive health care. And the esteemed Dr. John Weisler has been a frequent guest to my program. As you know, he's a North Vancouver cardiologist. He is just incredible. He practices at the North Shore Heart Center and at Lionsgate Hospital. He's head of cardiology over there at Lionsgate Hospital. He also um, does sports teams. He does health care for a number of the sports teams in the Vancouver area, uh, the BC Lions, the Canucks, the Vancouver Whitecaps. Anyway, he's just incredible. And he joins me on the line. Dr. Weisler, thanks so much. Uh, you're most welcome, Maureen. Thank you so much for having me. A pleasure to be with you. Oh, well, it's just so great to have you. And, you know, I mean, I consider you a colleague and a fabulous guest and also a friend. So thank you so much for all the times that you took from your family to join the program and educate people. Um, I, you know, honestly, my, my heart is just full of gratitude um, for you. So it's oh, great. Very kind. A pleasure, pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, thank you. So, Dr. Weiser, I thought with this little segment, we'd, you know, I, I'm a giving kind of person. <laughs> That's my nature. And, um, and so I'd love through you to be able to give the listeners some of your best heart health advice. What have you got for them? Well, I mean, I think um, it's, a, it's a great, uh, great question. I think, um, you know, it's important to, to, for everybody to look after themselves and, um, you know, to, to think a little bit about your heart health and try to keep your heart healthy. And, you know, I, I think um, for people who feel well, maybe they feel like they're, you know, totally fine. And, um, you know, uh, that's, you know, especially like thinking of younger, younger uh, patients and younger, younger clients, um, you know, it's uh, still important to invest in heart healthy behaviors. Uh, so to look after yourself, what you do at a younger age to look after yourself um, helps and pays dividends to keep you healthy into older age. So if you're young and, you know, you think you're invincible, which many of us used to do when, when we were young, um, you know, um, it's important still to stay active, uh, don't eat junk food or bad food too often, look after yourself, exercise, don't smoke, 
And then um, if you have some symptoms or have some health concerns, you know, um, pay attention to them. Look after things like cholesterol, blood pressure, diabetes, know your numbers. Um, have a family doctor if you can and try to check on those uh, periodically. You know, the recommendation is every few years after age 40 and then, you know, annually if you have abnormalities or problems or concerns. And then I think, um, you know, so healthy behavior, know your risk factors and look after things like cholesterol. And then if you do have symptoms, don't uh, ignore them or sit on them, you know, but uh, um, have them assessed, you know, um, seek seek care if you're noticing something that's unusual in your chest or if your heart's doing something that, you know, doesn't make sense. Um, we're always happy to check out symptoms and investigate them. And, you know, I see people almost every day in my clinic that I'm able to reassure, but, you know, you can't tell as a patient sometimes if it's serious or not. So it's important to have things have things looked at. So I think, um, you know, look after yourself, pay attention to symptoms. You know, we've spoken before, um, heart disease in women often is not recognized, you know, and people don't realize they're having heart disease. So both men and women can get heart disease. So it's important for, you know, both genders to pay attention to any change or symptoms that they may have. Absolutely. I, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, stress in a minute and the impact on, on your heart health. But, um, you know, I, I see patients too in my clinical practice and they come in with hypertension, hyperlipidemia, pre-diabetic. Um, I talk about nutrition, you know, and, and they have no, you know, in, in their 40s, you know, they're, and it's that idea that, you know, nothing bad is going to happen to them, family history or not. And and they are spending so much money on fast food, processed food, they're, they're you know, living a stressful life. They have a very stressful job uh, raising kids and they have no desire to make any changes. And and it's just like they they just seem to have a disconnect between what we see for their numbers and and um, their heart health. What what can we do about that? <laughs> yeah, so I mean that's always a, a tough one. And you know, I mean it's it's human nature to sort of focus on the immediate things in front of you like if you're busy you're busy with kids or you got a busy job or kids and job or whatever it is you know um that that always um and, and you know people never want to take medications you know do i have to take this pill and what will it do for me um so you know we we as as i think as health providers you know uh, we all understand you know that reflex um but um you know we, we don't make this stuff up you know everything you're doctor, your nurse, your nurse practitioner tells you is all backed up by, um, you know, science and ton and in particularly in cardiology and many areas of medicine, there's lots of research. Um, and, you know, um, it's important to recognize that we're, you know, that these, these risk factors, the things that you mentioned, cholesterol and blood pressure, they have a really substantial impact on our future risk of disease. If you have um, high blood pressure that you, you know, and usually people don't feel anything and, you know, you have to take medications and you don't feel any different, you know, it just lowers the number. But um, if your blood pressure is, higher than it should be, that more than doubles your lifetime risk of developing heart disease. Um, similar numbers exist for cholesterol, things like blood, blood glucose. So um, I think um, it's worth imagining, like you, you say, you're busy now, you have a busy job and, you know, you're busy with your kids. You know, you want to be alive and in good shape to see your kids or, you know, maybe succeed at your job 10 to 15 years down the, down the road. You know, heart disease alternates with cancer for being the number one killer for both men and, and women. 
and a lot of heart disease is preventable by looking after your risk factors. So I think I think thinking forward to, you know, maybe you wanting to be with your kids, say, 10 years from now, if you're busy with your kids, remember, it's an investment in yourself so that you can have those good family relationships in the future. And, and you know, um, often, you know, uh, doctors, um, especially family, are actually very busy in their practice. So if you want a more detailed discussion on the pros and cons of medications, some family doctors will be able to do that for you. Some who aren't, who don't have time, maybe that's a good reason for a referral. And, you know, most cardiologists are happy to meet with you and discuss things like that at some point. Mm-hmm. It's it's so challenging. And, you know, sometimes it's the job. You know, we, we place so much pressure on ourselves because of our jobs. And we also have this idea that, you know, it's just so important. It's the most important thing. We miss out on time with our families if we don't, you know, participate in work-life balance. Um, And jobs bring a lot of stress to people. And, you know, so what is that impact of, of stress on the heart, especially stress that could be modifiable? You know, and I also speak about, um, you know, if you are somebody who reacts versus somebody who responds, you know, that can have an impact on your heart. Somebody who's constantly in that, that hyper mode. What, what would you say to that? So it's it's definitely worth trying to find uh, some type of balance for sure. And, you know, the, the right answer is different for every person. Some people, you know, they, they like working, but they get themselves into work that's, you know, very busy and it's tough to slow down sometimes. And, of course, there's lots of other people that have to work really hard just to make ends meet, you know, and the stress there is even stronger. So I wouldn't pretend to have, like, all the answers for, for stress, but it's worth doing what you can to mitigate that balance that you know uh take time with you know things you enjoy people you enjoy that that time is worth it chronic chronic stress um has a number of adverse effects it has um uh harmful effects on the heart and the blood blood vessels directly so you have higher levels of adrenaline your heart works harder it beats faster than it should it also that that and that stress um you know you get higher levels of inflammation and so the harder work and the inflammation can injure the arteries directly and lead to blockages being formed Um, And then, you know, it has other effects like raising your blood pressure, making your arteries less healthy throughout your body. Um, So it has direct and it can also provoke changes in your heart rhythm that can be unpleasant and sometimes can be serious. And then um, it also uh, the the chronic stress also, um, you know, increases the chance that you have a lot of do a lot of other things that are bad for your heart. So if you're under stress, maybe you don't have time to eat properly. um, You don't exercise enough. You can't sleep well. Um, you know, and all of those have also been shown that they increase your risk of heart disease as well. You know, you don't exercise, you're making poor choices, your cholesterol will be higher, you don't get as much fitness, that it all increases your risk of heart disease as well. Absolutely. Um, and one last thing I wanted to talk about is anger. People who are the angry sorts, <laughs> the people who lose their cool, does that have an impact on on their heart? We only have about a minute left. <laughs> Yeah, so so definitely same same mechanism, but it's magnified. So people that have trouble with their anger, their risk of heart disease increases significantly. It's the same thing. Your heart works harder, your blood pressure is higher, your arteries are less healthy. So also worth controlling that as well or seeking help for that. Right, absolutely. Well, Dr. Weisler, it's it's thank you, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. I really am so grateful for all of the contribution that you've made to the show in the past many many years. How many has it been for you? <laughs> I discovered you at Lionsgate. It's, it's been, yeah, it's been a number of years. I think, you know, I don't know, eight years, 10 years. It's been, it's yeah. been some time. And yeah, for sure. It has been. Well, well, 
I'm certain we'll see you again. And uh, this is not the end for you and me. <laughs> we will carry on educating people, you and I, through um, a podcast. And uh, so I look forward to that too. Sounds great, Maureen. I look forward to it. And uh, thank you so much for having me on as your, as your guest. I really enjoyed it. And yeah, look forward to the next chapter. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. You know, with Prince Charles going in for benign prostatic hyperplasia um, a few weeks ago and then coming out with a cancer diagnosis. Of course, we don't know the type of cancer that he has, but I was thinking prostate and I was thinking what an important subject for men across Canada. So I've invited the esteemed Dr. Fred Saad, professor and chairman, Department of Surgery at the University of Montreal, and also author of the book, Understanding Prostate Cancer, to join me on the program this evening. Good evening, Dr. Saad. How are you? I'm fine. And how are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for joining the program. I really appreciate it. This is such an important subject. If you don't mind, if we can start at the basics, what exactly is prostate cancer and what is the incidence of prostate cancer across Canada? Yeah, so prostate cancer really uh, is, pro- is cancer that starts in the prostate gland. So what is the prostate gland? It's, it's an essential part of the body when you want to have children when you know and it produces most of the liquid when a man ejaculates so it, it's a very important organ in the body but with age it becomes more of a nuisance than really useful because it really doesn't have any function doesn't have sexual function doesn't give you sex drive doesn't produce any hormones but is really a pain for men because as it grows it gives symptoms and causes a lot of discomfort during the night waking up and all the rest but prostate cancer are cells in the prostate that become cancerous and stay quiet or can spread. And your question on incidence, it's the most common cancer in men in Canada, and it's the third leading cause of death from cancer in men. That is just incredible for something that doesn't have a tremendous use as men age, which is typically, I gather, when men are diagnosed with prostate cancer. What are some of the risk factors for prostate cancer? Right. So uh, the risk factor, the main risk factor is getting older. Uh, So aging um, increases your likelihood of developing prostate cancer. And and about 24,000, 25,000 men will be diagnosed every year with prostate cancer. And we estimate that it's about one in eight men in their lifetime will get a diagnosis of prostate cancer. Um, and, you know, what are the risk factors? Like I said, it's getting older, um, so with age. And, and given the fact that life expectancy is going up so much that in Canada it's a very prevalent disease because men are living longer, healthier, and the older you live, the more likely it is you'll develop prostate cancer. So it's rare under 50 but it does happen, especially if you have a family history. That's the second most common reason, is a family history, very much like breast cancer. The more Mm -hmm. you have in your family, the higher the risk of developing prostate cancer. And the other risk factors are, we think race is important. So people of the black race, for some reason, have a higher risk of prostate cancer. And, And, you know, we don't see that much in Africa because men don't live long enough to really become a very significant disease, but in places like Guadeloupe and Martinique, where they have a high rate of survival because of the French healthcare system, it's the highest risk of prostate cancer in the world. 
Wow, that's amazing. So are you basically saying that all men will eventually get prostate cancer if they live long enough or if they live a long life? Well, all men will develop small cells of prostate cancer in their prostate, but will not suffer from prostate cancer. So when we do an autopsy in a man over 80, there's about a 75% chance we'll find some cells that are cancerous, but it doesn't mean that they're going to suffer from it or even have a large enough cancer to diagnose it. So it's a disease of the aging, but unfortunately, that's the challenge we have, is that we have patients with prostate cancer that we diagnose that might never suffer from it, but on the other hand, we have a large proportion of men that are diagnosed that are at risk of actually suffering and eventually dying of the disease. Um, and, and so that's our big challenge in research is, is, is trying to figure out who needs aggressive treatment and who we can leave alone. And that's part of our research and part of many research centers in, in, around the world. Right, because one of the treatments, as I understand it, for prostate cancer is this watchful waiting. And so right. those are the men I would imagine, or perhaps you can tell me, um, why does, yeah. would somebody uh, be able to be watched as opposed to treated? Right, and this is very Canadian. I mean, Canada led the way in realizing that we can probably watch, or as we call it, active surveillance. So we diagnose a man with prostate cancer because the PSA is slightly elevated, and we biopsy the man, and they have cancer. But the cancer is so minimal in size and low grade, and we know that in the 10 years, even 15 years from the time of diagnosis, the likelihood of dying from it is probably under 3%. And so the grade of the cancer, so not all cancers can be put in the same basket. So we ask the pathologist to tell us what grade it is. So if it's a low-grade cancer, so category one if you want, um, we will, around the world now, based on Canadian research, we can watch those men. But then once the cancer starts getting more and more aggressive, especially in a younger and younger man, we have to make sure that we treat it before it spreads. Because once it spreads, unfortunately, we can have men go into remission, but we can't cure them. Doesn't mean you'll die from it, but you can cure it. So we, we, we try to manage it so it becomes a chronic disease rather than a cause of death. I see. Um, even some of the treatments from, um, for prostate cancer can leave men with some debilitating um, quality of life issues like urinary incontinence and erectile dysfunction. Um, but I, I wanted to you talked a little bit about the different stages. So does a stage four diagnosis always mean that it's terminal in prostate cancer? Stage four means that we can't hope to cure a man. Because stage four, for, for the average person, what it means is the cancer has left the prostate and spread to other parts of the body. And once it's at, it's at that stage, what we can hope to do is control the disease so that men can live a long time and, you know, like we say, life is a lethal disease, right? We're all, we're all going to die one day. And so what we want is to try to keep the cancer under control. And as long as we keep it under the control, men might have time to die of some other cause like heart disease or something else. So stage four doesn't mean that you'll necessarily die of the disease, but it does mean that we can't hope to cure it. We can keep it in remission like diabetes, like high blood pressure that we can't cure, but we can control it. And even... You know, HIV now, we can't cure it, but we can keep it under control so long that we bring back men to the life expectancy that they should have. 
Right, exactly. Um, so tell me about non-metastatic castration-sensitive prostate cancer, or NMCSP. I think people just generally think of prostate cancer, and anytime they hear the word cancer, they get nervous, but there are specific types of cancers. So tell me a little bit about that, please. Yeah, so so that's a wide range of cancer when it's non-metastatic. So this is mm-hmm. where we can hope to cure a patient. And like you said, if a patient comes in with cancer that, that is likely to harm him, we will either do surgery or radiation to try to cure them. Unfortunately, about 30% of men that we're going to treat hoping to cure them will have a recurrence of their disease. And how do we detect a recurrence? The PSA, that famous blood test that we do, will start to go up. So when it goes up, it means the cancer is reappearing. And in those patients, what we do is normally we'll give them hormone therapy to bring the cancer back into remission. Um, And in, in that case, sometimes we can keep them in remission for a very long time. Unfortunately, if the cancer progresses and becomes metastatic, then we're back to your stage four, and and then, unfortunately, we can't cure them. And so we're developing treatments for this recurrent disease, so non-metastatic, but PSA is going up. And even there, there are some men that have aggressive recurrence and others with less aggressive recurrence, depending on how fast the PSA is rising. Right. I've certainly seen a lot of patients in my clinical practice who have been diagnosed with prostate cancer, and then it had recurred after having been treated. What are some of the advancements in prostate cancer of late? Yeah, so that this is where it's very, very exciting because for a long time, we've only been able to give standard hormone therapy. When I say hormone therapy, what I really mean is the prostate cancer is fed by men's androgen so it's, their testosterone is feeding the cancer. And so what we do is we give them hormone therapy so that the testosterone goes down to castrate levels. So mm-hmm. we're basically medically castrating men, and that can put them back into remission. Now, the big change is the recent results from a large international study that we can give hormone therapy combined with a new therapy that we've used for metastatic disease in the past, and then we're still using today, called enzalutamide. So Extandi is the brand name. And when we combine Extandi with basic hormone therapy, we realize we can do much better than standard hormone therapy alone in terms of delaying metastases, which is unfortunately the reason men will die of prostate cancer. This is really a big advance using therapy that we used to reserve for very advanced diseases, stage four, and even worse, bringing it to men that have recurrent disease, no evidence of metastases, and we're able to delay that metastatic state, which is ultimately what we want to avoid, because as long as men are not metastatic, they simply won't die of prostate I see. And is that what we mean by, well, first and foremost, I want to ask you the mechanism of action. How does Extandi work? Right. So Extandi will block the androgen receptor. So when prostate cancer is progressing is because they're being stimulated by a receptor that needs testosterone and hormones, male hormones, to have the cancer progress. So Xtandi is a very powerful blocker of the receptor 
that is hungry for male hormones. And we're effectively able to block that. So their standard hormone therapy will reduce the production of hormones, but there's always a little bit that is going to stimulate the cancer. And with a drug like Xtandi, we can potently block the receptor that's looking for any little amount of testosterone and ultimately keep that cancer in check that men can live longer and better quality of life. It's awesome. And it's a tremendous work that you're doing. I know that you're doing this every day. And it sounds like there's an overall survival benefit for patients treated with Xtandi for prostate cancer. Dr. Saad, thank you so much for joining me on the program today. That's Dr. Saad, Professor and Chairman, Department of Surgery, University of Montreal, author of Understanding Prostate Cancer. And I recommend that you read that. Thanks so much, Dr. Saad. It's a pleasure. And hopefully that's helpful for men. Very helpful and keep up the great work. If you're just joining the show, you may not have heard that this is the last Sunday Night Health show here. I'm going to be continuing on a podcast. You can go to MaureenMcGrath.com, as always, and listen to the podcast Sunday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Probably change it up a little bit. We'll see what uh, life brings. But I do want to take a moment to thank somebody who's done tremendous amount of work for me behind the scenes, and that's Phil Figueroa. He has just been a consummate professional. He's so talented, so supportive. And so, Phil, thank you so much uh, for all of that. And thank you to all of you listeners as well, because without you, there would never have been a show. And, you know, I was thinking, it's been about 11 years that I've been doing this show. And, you know, that's a pretty good run. Friends only lasted 10 years. (laughs) Anyway, coming up next, we're going to be talking about gratitude, because that is something that I am full of. I'm Maureen McGrath, and you're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the final stroke of the Sunday Night Health Show. It's been my absolute honor to serve you in this way over the last 13 years, I guess, or 14 years, depending how you look at it. First as a regular health contributor, then host of the Sunday Night Sex Show. Yes, I said that word. And then host of the Sunday Night Health Show for the past 11 years. Anyway, um, I do want to just take a moment to say thank you to the listeners who tuned in and especially those who participated frequently in the show, whether they texted me or they emailed me or whether you participated in my health quiz. Just know that I really appreciated it and I felt really connected to you. And so some of those listeners are Catherine from Surrey and Derek from Edmonton, Steve in Calgary, Yvonne, Yvonne, who always participated so in such a detailed fashion with the um, health quizzes. And I really love that. Bill from Hamilton and Johnny Winnipeg. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate that. I've met so many amazing people throughout the years in radio. And you know what? I'm a nurse. (laughs) I never expected to land here and have this run. And it has been a great run. I've loved it. It has been a passion project of mine. If I have helped one of you out there in Canada who's been listening, I have done my job incredibly well. It's difficult to say goodbye to an audience that you've been connected with for 13 years. And and this is a significant moment. And it's heartfelt. I have tremendous respect for you in my bid to fare thee well. And of course, I have a whirlwind of emotions. And and first of all, I want to thank 
John O behind the boards and Phil, who's been my tech producer, and Leo Coelho, who had, was my longstanding tech producer, who just did an amazing job. So many incredible people, too many to name at the station uh, that I have learned from, that I have listened to, that I have loved throughout the years. And so it's just been awesome. It's so nice to end here on a high note and know that I'm going to be continuing on as well. MaureenMcGrath.com. You can go to my website if you would like. Um, of course, it's, uh, you know, it's a bit emotional. You've been more than just listeners. You've been companions on a journey filled with laughter and tears, growth and discovery. And I have a heavy heart. I'm not going to lie to you, but I also have a sense of gratitude. And when I embarked on this journey, 14 years ago, I never could have imagined the depth of connection that we would forge. I never could have imagined all that I would have learned and all of the amazing people that I would have met, whether I met them in person or on LinkedIn or online or but had them as guests on the show as well. And, you know, of course, we've had some ups and downs. We lived through a pandemic, uh, e- bad economic times in 2008, 2009, um, recession, high interest rates. You know, it's been challenging. Challenging, And people have had issues with their relationships, with their physical health, emotional health, mental health. But you've stood by me offering unwavering support and encouragement through it all. I've read every single text message and every single email. And my goal was to answer all of your text messages and all of your emails. And I think I did. <laughs> I hope I did. But um, and that's why we're connected, because you cared to ask, you cared to contribute, you cared to help me. And I sensed that. I felt that. And I loved that. Your loyalty has been a constant source of inspiration, driving me to strive for excellence and authenticity in every interaction that we have shared. We've shared moments of joy and celebration, moments of fear. We've also shared moments that have filled my heart with warmth. We've weathered the storms. We've faced challenges together head on. We emerged stronger. Hopefully you're just a little bit more resilient than before. Hopefully you're empowered a little bit more with health information and that you can take to your doctor and talk to in an, from an informed perspective. It's these shared experiences that I've come to cherish, cherish the bond that we've had, knowing that no matter what life throws our way, We've always had each other. There's something about radio, something about someone coming into your living room that's like a conversation, like we're chatting back and forth. And you've chatted to me and I've chatted to you. And it's been amazing. But as the saying goes, all good things must come to an end. And so with a bittersweet mix of nostalgia and anticipation, I bid you farewell. As I embark on a new chapter in my life's journey, and and I'm very excited about it, I carry with me the memories we've created together, the learnings, the experiences, the memories that I will forever hold dear. This has been awesome. I have had quite a ride and I have had an absolute blast. Even on a Sunday, I might have been tired. I might have had a long week. I might have been dealing with the family, whatever, and maybe thought, oh, I've got the show tonight. The second I turned that mic on, boom, I came alive. And it was thanks to you. So as I sign off for the final time here, I do so with a sense of gratitude and humility. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for 
his 11 incredible years with you. Thank you for allowing me to come into your living rooms, to be part of your lives. Thanks for sharing your stories with me, your, your pains, your heartaches, your joys, your celebrations, your laughter, your tears. Thank you for being the most incredible audience a person could ask for. And though our time together might be ending here, it's not going to end forever. Our memories will live on forever, though. And who knows? Perhaps our paths will cross again. And you'll join me on my podcast. So go to MaureenMcGrath.com. Don't worry. Nothing's going to change. It's just a slightly different link. (laughs) We're still going to talk. We're still going to text. We're still going to chat. We're still going to educate and just try to deliver the best program possible, which is what I have tried to do over the past several years. I want to thank all of my tech producers, all of my amazing guests, and especially all of you. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm so glad we've had this time together. Remember, go to my website, MaureenMcGrath.com, and when you stumble on this gravel road of life, make it part of your dance. I am Maureen McGrath, and you have been listening to the Sunday Night Health Show.